0: Thank you, choir and orchestra, and also worship team for uh, leading us in worship and blessing us as you do week after week. Uh, And uh, we want to extend a welcome to all of you who are meeting in this place, also those of you who are meeting in different venues here at Central Campus, plus those of you meeting in one of our regional sites in the city, and also those of you who are tuning in from some other part of Alberta. May God bless you all as you continue to serve him in the place that he has called you to. A number of years ago, Time Magazine carried the photo of an all-around good guy by the name of Leonard Holt. When he wasn't working as a lab tech in a Pennsylvania paper mill, you would find him spending time with his family, or leading a Boy Scout troop or volunteering at a local fire brigade. He was an active church member and he was a model citizen. And that's why the entire community was in absolute shock when they heard that Leonard one day walked through his workplace with two pistols in hand and methodically gunned down friends and coworkers leaving a number of them dead now when something like this happens the first question that comes to your mind is what causes an apparently normal everyday kind of person to do something like this well when the dust settled and the investigation was over and they put all the pieces together it was determined that there was something ugly brewing under the surface in Leonard's life. Time Magazine captioned captured it this way. Leonard Holt, responsible, respectable, resentful. Holt had been nursing a demon called resentment for a number of years. For almost 20 years, Holt had always given his best at work. And yet, there were people beneath him who time and time again, were promoted ahead of him. On top of that, he had started a carpool to the paper mill in which he worked. Over time, some of those co-workers opted out because Leonard's driving was reckless and dangerous. A number of these people were gunned down by Holt. No one was aware of the festering bitterness that was eating away at his soul. So when a person falls apart like this or when a deep friendship of many years suddenly goes sideways or a great marriage or a happy family suddenly blows up we are shaken to the core and we find ourselves asking how does this happen well the Bible's full of examples of how this happens I want to just give you one example In Genesis 25, we read that Rebekah, the wife of Isaac, became pregnant with twins. And when the twins were born, they named the first twin to be born Esau, the second Jacob. Now in those days, the oldest son was given a special birthright, which included taking over the family estate, kind of the family farm as it were, and receiving a special blessing from the father before he passed on. And so when the twins had grown up, and their father Isaac was getting along in years, Rebecca, their mother, who favored, is- uh, who favored Jacob, which is never a good idea, parents, favoring one child over another. That spells trouble with a capital T. But Rebecca who favored Jacob, began to conspire so that Jacob would get the birthright and also the blessing of Isaac rather than Esau. Now, without getting into all the details, Jacob, Jacob went along with Rebekah's plans and successfully tricked Esau not only into selling his birthright, but into getting Isaac to give a special blessing to Jacob rather than Esau. And when Esau realized that he had been duped, Genesis 27 tells us that Esau burst out with a loud and a bitter cry. Verse 41 says, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother, Jacob. Now again, make no mistake, what Jacob and Rebekah did was wrong. And they would pay dearly for their sin. Because of Esau's threats, Jacob had to leave town immediately. And as best as we can tell from the scriptures, Rebekah never saw her favored son again. The family would never be together again. Only conflict and hatred would define their future. Rebecca and Jacob paid big time for their sin of greed and deception. And so Esau, in some way, was really justified to feel the way that he did because he'd been defrauded by those that he loved and trusted. However, his refusal to forgive. And to remain bitter was also a sin. It was also wrong. Carried a high price. Because Esau too would be separated from his family for good. The scriptures indicate that Esau left. And he settled in the land of Edom. Which is another name for Esau. Which was located southeast of what is the Dead Sea. And Esau passed on his grudge. His bitterness against his brother Jacob to his own children. And even though we read in Genesis chapter 33 that Jacob and Esau met and tearfully embraced each other a number of years later, the scripture says they parted ways again. And we know from history, from the events that happened after that, that a seed of hatred and discord had been planted deep into the hearts of the descendants of Esau. For example, hundreds of years after the death of Jacob and Esau, Israel was making their way to the land of Canaan. This would be after 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And when they approached the land that God had promised them, they felt it best if they could go through Edom to make their way to the promised land. And you'll remember that Edom, of course, were the descendants of Esau. And Numbers 20 tells us that they refused. No way, Jose, you coming through our land. Because we don't like you. We don't trust you. Why did they have those feelings? By then, we're talking hundreds of years later, so I'm not even sure they knew why they had those feelings, except that their parents told them, whose parents told them, whose parents told them, that they could not be trusted, that they were their enemies. In later years, we read in Second Samuel 8 that King David conquered Edom for a time. But over in Second Chronicles chapter 20, it says that the Edomites struck back during the time of Jehoshaphat and took control of their land again. Later, King Amaziah of Judah conquered the Edomites again. And so the stomach churns. I trust that you're seeing the picture here. There was a long history of hate and conflict between these two people groups. From the day that Jacob and Esau had a falling out, Right up to Obadiah's day, many centuries later, the descendants of both Jacob and Esau were at each other's throats, doing everything they could to make life miserable for the other. And God finally says enough. I've tried to wake you up to your hatred and to your unforgiveness, but you refuse to hear me you refuse to change your ways. And so here in the book of Obadiah, God warns the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, that judgment is coming their way unless they repent. And so folks, that is the background, and that is a quick overview of the book of Obadiah, which we're going to look at next next in our walk through the Old Testament. It's the smallest book in the Old Testament, only 21 verses long, and so I'm going to invite you to try to find it. You may go over it a couple of times before you do, but it is sandwiched between Amos and Jonah, so uh, go dig for it. You should be able to find it. But before we get into it, would you stand with me as we dedicate our time to the Lord in prayer? Again, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for introducing us, not only to the prophets, but also to the message that you wanted conveyed through them to the people of that day. And Lord, again, we recognize that those messages are in the scriptures because you also want to say something to us today. So I ask that you would humble our hearts, that you would focus our minds, and then, Lord, as you speak to us, that we'd have the courage and the humility to receive it and to respond, as you would call us to. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Now, you know, it's a fact of life that people hurt each other. You now, I'm reminded of the story of the elderly lady who was ever so carefully trying to back her Rolls Royce into a parking stall when a cocky young fellow in a small little sports car zipped around her and took her stall before she had a chance to back into it. And he hopped out of his car, chuckling, and said, Hey, lady, that's what you can do when you're young and smart. Well, she wasn't impressed. She put her Rolls into reverse, and to her horror, and to his horror rather, began to smash into his little car. Just began to use it as a battering ram until she managed to get her rolls into the same stall as his little sports car was. And then she got out of the car, looked him in the eye, and said, Hey, Sonny, that's what you can do when you're old and rich. <laughs> That's the way it is in life, folks. Whether you're young and smart or you're old and rich, you're going to hurt some people and others are going to be hurt by you. If we respond to that hurt in a godly way, we inhale life into our soul and we breathe life into the relationship. If we respond, on the other hand, in an ungodly way, we poison Not only our soul, but our relationship with others. And in some cases, we start a chain reaction of destruction in many other relationships, including from one generation to another. Now, as I've indicated, Jacob and Rebekah hurt Esau. Esau had a legitimate right to feel hurt and betrayed. But he was wrong. To nurse his bitterness rather than to forgive. To pass on his, his resentment to his children rather than leave it with the Lord to sort out the justice issues associated with what happened. And as we've seen, as a result of the way that Esau responded to the hurt that came his way, it's had a dramatic negative impact between the families of Jacob and Esau in the years that followed. And Obadiah describes some of that hatred. Now, I should mention that there is debate regarding exactly when it is that Obadiah lived and also when he wrote this prophecy. But I am convinced it occurred after the destruction of the southern kingdom of Judah and the destruction of its capital, Jerusalem, in 586 B.C. The Babylonian invasion was a national tragedy, one of the the, the worst in the history of Old Testament Israel. Not only did Judah lose many lives in that battle, but they also lost their national and religious identity. They lost their king. They lost their land. They lost their holy city and they lost the temple. They really lost everything that was of value to them. On top of that, many of those who survived were shipped off as slaves back to Babylon. Now to add insult to injury, we read in Obadiah verse 12 that their ancient rivals, the Edomites, looked down their noses at them And they rejoiced over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction. It says they stood aloof in the high places. And they stood idly by while Judah was being looted and destroyed. In verse 13 tells us that others actually joined in. Some of the Edomites joined in and seized some of Israel's wealth for themselves. In fact, verse 14 says that they actually gloated over their defeat. They essentially stood there and said, You had this coming. They gloated. They were happy to see the, the, the harm and, and the hurt that was coming to um, their brothers, really at the hands of the Babylonians. Now if you want to know the feelings that the Edomites had, the extent of their anger, turn back to Amos chapter 1, verse 11 for a moment. God says there that Edom would be judged. And this is why. Because he, referring to Edom, Pursued his brother, referring to Israel, with a sword. Stifling all compassion. In other words, not having a bit of compassion. Because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked. Folks, that is what a grudge can lead to. Centuries after the initial falling out between Esau and Jacob, Edom, the descendants of Esau, are still raging with anger and resentment toward their brother, Israel. While Edom's hard attitude so grieves the Lord that he calls on Obadiah to pronounce judgment on them, in verse 15 we read, The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Obadiah says to Edom, The judgment of Israel that you have stood by and celebrated and gloated over is now coming your way. And that is one of the messages of Obadiah. But this tiny book is more than announcing the coming judgment to Edom. Through this tiny book, God has something to say to all of us about how much he hates resentment and bitterness in our lives and how much he doesn't want it to be part of our lives. As I said a moment ago, the reality is we've all been hurt by others. For where two or three are gathered, there will be problems. (laughs) Some of you can remember insults from some of your schoolmates who made fun of your athletic ability, or perhaps your physical appearance, or the way that you dressed. It's been over 40 years, and I can still remember some of the hurtful things that were said to me by some of my peers and particularly by some girls. I won't mention what they said. It doesn't bother me a bit. Some of you have been hurt by teachers and coaches and professors. I still remember a college professor calling me into his office and pointing out one of my many weaknesses. I mean, that was like 35 years ago. And I haven't forgotten what he said and where I was when he said it. Not that I hold a grudge against the old judgmental codger. (laughs) Just kidding. Some of you have been wounded by harsh words of a parent. Others of you have had children perhaps in their teens or maybe in their adult years, say things to you that have just crushed you. Some of you have been hurt by one of your siblings. Others of you have been hurt by your spouse. And then there's others of you who are angry at God, maybe because of the death of a loved one or because of unanswered prayer. Or because of a breakdown of a relationship. And you can't understand why God would allow that. Why God wouldn't interview you. And you're upset with him. The stories are all different. But many of us carry the hurts of the past for a long time. So what have you done with that hurt? What are you doing with that hurt? You know, I've, I've noticed that the more I travel the more I learn how unpleasant it is to take along more suitcases than you need. I always realized that about halfway through the trip. I remember once when the wheel was broken on one of our suitcases, I won't say whose it was, <laughs> except that it was an incredibly heavy suitcase filled with lotions and a whole bunch of other useless products Oh yeah. Anyways, I remember lugging that that thing around all over the place. (laughs) Help me, Jesus, please. You know. (laughs) And what a relief it was to finally unload that tank on a conveyor belt and to let it go where suitcases go to. To be relieved of the burden from that point on, to be able to walk around without it. Now, I share that with you because when I think of people who hold grudges and who nurse bitterness against others, the image that comes to mind is a person lugging around a suitcase like this, with no wheels, full of useless rocks and just kind of chaining this thing to themselves and this thing dragging around everywhere they go. And some of you have suitcases plumb full of hurt and bitterness. And so what are you going to do with that pain? Will you release it and leave it with God? Or will you keep the hurt warm by nursing it? Mm. (laughs) Stay warm. And reminding yourself again and again how you were hurt. Play it again, Sam. That's called keeping a grudge. Bitterness is when you allow hurt to become hate. It's when you stoke the fire by reliving the pain. Resentment robs you of joy. It keeps your eyes focused on the hurt rather than on the healer. On the hope and the healing that we have in Jesus Christ. You know, folks, you won't sleep well, you won't eat well, you won't feel well, you won't live well as long as you keep lugging around that suitcase. Resentment always hurts you more than it does the person that you're angry with. Do you know that? While you're stewing and spewing, while you're having sleepless nights, grinding away, popping antacid pills. Your enemy is sleeping soundly in his bed. Resentment robs you of joy. Resentment robs you of health. Proverbs 17.22 says, A cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. People say, watch what you eat. And you know, that's good advice because too many of us in North America particularly, we don't watch very carefully what we eat. So it's good advice, watch what you eat. But you know, what's eating you can have a greater negative impact on your health than what you're eating. There's a strong relationship between your physical health and your spiritual health. In fact, there's a relationship between sin And sickness I'm not saying that all sickness is caused by sin it's not but a lot of problems that we have physically may be related to resentment in our lives you see when a person's bitter or angry or or cynical your body produces chemicals that flow throughout your body that can affect your stomach and affect your kidneys your heart and other critical organs and glands as someone said, resentment is swallowing poison and then waiting for the other person to die. I once heard a pastor tell the true story of a woman in, in his congregation who was going through a horrendous divorce. And during all of the proceedings and all the emotional roller coaster ride that she was on, She began to go blind in one eye. So she went to doctors, a number of them, who did all kinds of tests. They could not find a physiological reason for her blindness in this eye. And finally, when she came to the end of her own resources, she decided to try God. And she attended church. And God really spoke to her and ministered to her in that particular service, so much so at the end of the service, she just cried out to God. And she prayed a prayer, God, please flush out all of the bitterness and the pain, the hurt in my life, and fill me with your love and your joy. The pastor says she finished that prayer, she got up, she walked outside, hadn't even gotten to her car, and the sight in her eye came back. Friends, we have no idea what we are doing when we hold on to a grudge. It robs us of joy. It can rob us of health. It destroys relationships, and as we've seen, it gets passed on from one generation to the next. None of us want to live that way. And as we see here in the book of Obadiah, God doesn't want us living that way. So how do we resist resentment from getting a hold in our lives? Well, first of all, by surrendering our pride to God. Why don't you look at verse 3 in Obadiah? God says this, The pride of your heart has deceived you you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights, you who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Now what's being referred to here are the cliffs of Petra, which is a Um, is is one of the wonders of the world. It stands uh, about 700 feet high, and there are buildings and palaces and homes that have been chiseled out of solid rock on the side of the mountain. It served as a formidable fortress. And as we read here in Obadiah, the Edomites felt very secure there. Petra, by the way, is found in Jordan. Now, when you feel safe and secure, you can convince yourself over time that you don't need God. And you can begin to see yourself as the center of your own universe, the king of your own castle. And it's precisely that kind of mindset that can deceive you. Notice again, the Lord says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. It's precisely that kind of mindset that can deceive you and lead to a deep-seated pride that gives you permission to pay back those who have hurt you, that gives you permission to actually celebrate the failures and the hurts of other people, that gives you permission to refuse to forgive other people, Because you see, when we refuse to forgive someone, it actually puts us in a place of superiority over them. And this is what the Edomites were doing. And yet Matthew chapter 6, verse 15, Jesus says, But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Do you you believe that? Was Jesus just kidding here? In other words, he's saying here, a tangible sign that you believe God, that you understand and have experienced the grace of God and the forgiveness of God, is that you will forgive others who have hurt you, even those you believe don't deserve it. There is no middle ground here. There's no sitting on the fence of partial surrender. In fact, there is no such thing as partial surrender in the mind of God in the same way that there is... It's not possible for a woman to be partially pregnant. You either are or you're not. You know, Daniel Meyer... He tells the story of a man named Homer who was just madly in love with a woman named Sue and he finally built up the courage to to propose to this girl of his dreams. And so he dropped to one knee before her. He looked his beloved in the eye and he said, Sue, I know I'm not wealthy like Mike. And Sue, I recognize that I'm not handsome like Mike. And Sue, I may not be as well-educated as Mike, but I truly do love you. Well, Sue obviously was moved by his sincerity, and she responded, Well, I love you too, Homer. But but tell me a little bit more about Mike. (laughs) Not exactly the answer that Homer was looking for. But you see... He knew that Sue's partial commitment was really no commitment at all. She had her eye on someone else. If we want all that God offers to us, then we need to offer him all of us. I mean, let me explain it this way. Let's say that for years now, you have wanted to start your own business, but you never had the cash to do it, and you've got big dreams, so you need a lot of cash. That's why you've never done it up to this point. But one of your friends who has immense wealth, you're telling him about this one day, and he chooses to lend you the $10 million you need, and quite a friend. However, just before you begin setting up your business and getting it organized, you you get a hot tip from another good friend whom you trust, who says, you know what, you can double your money in, in a matter of just a few months. And since your plans for your business will take up to six months to kind of put into place, you decide that you're going to invest this money in this scheme that your friend has pointed out to you. And a few months later, to your horror, you discover that the investment that you made was a scam, and you've lost it all. And so now you meet with your rich friend. You meet with him face to face, and you are sweating profusely in his well-air-conditioned office. You nervously tell him what you did. You take responsibility for it, and then you fall on your knees before him. You break out in tears and you beg him to extend grace to you that you will pay it back somehow over the next 345 years <laughs> he interrupts you and he says just just wait a minute he says I got to tell you I'm really disappointed in what you've done and I sure don't plan to lend you any more money But I'm an investor. And as an investor, I win sometimes and I lose sometimes. And I guess in this situation, I've just lost big time. But you owe me nothing. Now let that sink in a little bit. Let the shock hit you. Let the incredible relief hit you and the sense of freedom that is yours because this rich friend of yours has extended amazing grace to you you were liable you were sunk and yet the debt is forgiven and you are free now imagine on the way home you happen to notice in the corner drugstore there's another friend of yours in that drugstore who owes you $18. In light of what you just were forgiven of, would you run into that store, grab that guy by the throat, and demand that he cough up the $18? Or else... Or would you be so overwhelmed by the grace that's been extended to you that you would pass on the same grace to him? Friends, that is a modern version of a parable that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 18. And through that parable, Jesus says to you and to me, if God extended such Amazing grace to you how can you not extend the same grace to someone else John Piper says if you can't then you really haven't experienced the grace of God if you can't then there's still too much of you in you But when we truly surrender our pride and our very lives to God and embrace His amazing grace, we are changed from the inside out. The old is gone, the new has come. We have a new nature, a new heart attitude, a new mindset. We have a new Lord and King. We no longer see the universe, see ourselves as the King of the universe. No, we're on our knees before the King of the universe. And we surrender to His agenda rather than our own. And we are committed to exalting Him rather than to see ourselves be exalted. Everything changes. God is now the center of our affection. And that means I'm no longer looking at everything that happens to me in terms of how it affects me. In terms of my bottom line, in terms of my reputation, because I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. When God is at the center of my affections, my focus shifts from me to him to the things that concern him. And that includes putting the interests, as the Apostle Paul said, putting the interests of others ahead of myself. It means not being so touchy or overly sensitive or on the defensive. It means not always having to be right. Not always having to be seen as the best or having it all together all the time. It means being quick to forgive those who have hurt me. James said, God opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. And then he says, Submit yourselves then to God. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. He'll give you the strength to do what you can't do. James is saying here, you don't have the power to give grace to the humble in yourself. So you need to submit or surrender your life totally to God and he will live his life of grace and love through you. So that's the first step to resisting resentment from growing in our life. It's surrendering your pride to God. The second is this. Take the initiative. Take the initiative. Edom's pride and resentment was clearly evident in the way that they treated the Israelites. And God challenged them on this. In verse 11, Obadiah says, On the day you stood aloof. In other words, he's saying, on the day of Israel's greatest need, you stood there and gloated and didn't lift a finger to help them. You see, that is how resentment often plays itself out. Sometimes when we've been hurt, we sit back and we pray, oh Lord, O Lord, show them the error of their ways. And we wait. And we wait. And we wait for the offending person to come to us. And to drop on their knees before us and to beg for our forgiveness. Then we rationalize, I will forgive. But only then. Only when they see the error of their ways and they come to me and ask for forgiveness. And you know, that attitude is so unbiblical and ungodly and explains why sometimes the church is full of people who are mad at each other and the person who's mad at doesn't even know that the other person's mad at them. Everybody else does except the person but you see the scriptures clearly teach that forgiveness like God's love agape love is a decision you make we are to forgive even if the other person never asks for our forgiveness and I'll explain why in a moment So take the initiative. Take initiative by talking to God first. Get away by yourself. Go for a walk. Share your hurt and pain with the Lord before anyone else. I love the story of a couple who were celebrating 50 years of marriage. And, and at the anniversary party, you know, someone asked them what their secret was. And the husband said, well, we made a simple agreement, you know, early on in our marriage. We agreed that when she was bothered or upset with me, she could just go ahead, blow off steam, tell me off, get it out of her system. On the other hand, if I was upset with her or angry at her, I should go out for a walk. And then he smiled and he said, I guess you can attribute our marital success to the fact that I've come to really enjoy the outdoors. (laughs) Oh, yeah. But seriously, when you've been hurt, the very first step that you need to take, that I need to take, is to get together with God, to go for a walk with Him, tell Him about how we're feeling, unload on Him. Furthermore, if you feel that you need to talk to someone who has skin and bones, then take initiative by sharing your heart with a confident who is neither part of the problem or the solution. Someone who's objective. If you've got an issue at your workplace, for example, say you've got a conflict going on between you and a fellow employee or you and the boss, don't go to another employee and ask them, you know, tell them how you're feeling and all the rest of it. Because all you're going to accomplish is you're going to get that person all upset at your boss or whoever. No. Go to someone who doesn't know where you work, doesn't care what you do, just cares about you. That person will actually listen to what you have to say and give you objective input. So take initiative by going to God first and then going to a confidant that you can trust who's not involved in whatever the situation is that you're struggling with. And then once your emotions are in check, and this is why you do these first two steps, is to deal with all of the hurt and the anger that's there. Once your emotions are in check, take initiative and talk to the person who hurt you. Now, well, we don't like that step, do we? You see, Matthew 18, 15 says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. Go tactfully. Go humbly. Go with the intent of restoring the relationship, not hammering that person into the ground. Put yourself in her shoes. Try to understand what's going on in her life that may explain why she said what she said or did what she did. And the intent here, of course, is, is not to excuse her behavior or what she said. That's not the issue. But it's to help you through understanding to love them and to extend grace to her as Jesus would have you to. Someone once said, hurt people, hurt people. And that's true. Often when someone is hurting others, it's because they themselves are hurting. So resist resentment by surrendering your pride to God and by taking initiative. Furthermore, bless those who have hurt you. Bless those who threaten you. Notice in verse 12, Obadiah says, you should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune or rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction. And what Obadiah is really saying here is that pride and resentment reveals itself when we find ourselves rejoicing in the failures of others. Have you ever found yourself doing that? Particularly those that you would see as competitors? He says, Resentment and pride reveals itself when we find ourselves rejoicing in the failures of others and find ourselves agitated and deflated in the successes of others on the other hand a sign that we have truly surrendered our pride in our lives to God and released resentment in our lives is when we we freely bless others when we refuse to do to them as they have done to us when we choose to speak well of them or if we can't speak well of them with integrity to not say anything at all when the opportunity presents itself. Blessing them is to be gracious to them, to give them the benefit of the doubt, to seek the understanding, uh, to seek to understand their feelings, to understand their point of view, to put ourselves in their shoes and to respond to them the way we would want them to respond to us. I can't control what you say about me. But I can control what I say about you. And that is what God is holding me accountable for. So bless people. Bless those that you would consider to be a threat. Your competitors. Those whose success diminishes your own. At least in the eyes of others those who are in positions similar to yours, whom others compare you to. You can know your heart is where it needs to be with God when you can honestly bless them, rejoice in their success, celebrate their gifts and talents, and encourage them and work right alongside them. And then finally, resist resentment by choosing to forgive. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, we read, This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Circle the words atoning sacrifice. This is how God loved us. We didn't deserve it, and yet He chose to forgive us of our sins at the price of His own life there is no greater love than that. And so if you're carrying a grudge against someone today, Jesus comes to you right now and he says there's another way for you to respond to the hurt in your life. You can choose to forgive. You can extend grace. Yes, you can carry that grudge the rest of your life, like like a suitcase Full of resentment. You can avoid that person when you see them in a restaurant booth or in the atrium of the church. You can celebrate their failures. You can take every opportunity you have to tell the story of how they hurt you to whoever will listen to you. Or you can follow the example of the one who made an atoning sacrifice for you on the cross of Calvary and forgave you of all the junk in your life. Forgiveness is always costly because forgiveness says, I'll take the hit. I'll bear the pain. I'll pay the price. Jesus paid it all. He paid the price. He took it the hit for you and me. But you see, that's what a lover does. A lover bears the wounds inflicted by others. Now that doesn't mean that we don't address those wounds. It doesn't mean we don't have honest conversations about them. It doesn't mean that those who have broken the law are not brought to justice and pay for their crimes. And it doesn't mean that sometimes firm boundaries have to be set up when people are dangerous, when people have deeply wounded others, when people have proven themselves to be untrustworthy or unreliable. Forgiveness isn't letting someone off the hook of justice. No, forgiveness is letting someone off my hook. For you see, if you don't let the offender off your hook... Guess what? You're still chained to him. You're still chained to the memory of all that he or she did to you and that means continual pain and turmoil for you. Forgiving someone means I take off my judicial rope. And I say I will not judge you any longer. I am trusting God is a better justice maker than I am. I am releasing my right to get even, to get my pound of flesh. And I am choosing to begin treating you the way that Jesus has treated me. Folks, the only safe place to put your suitcase that's full of resentment is at the foot of the cross. People who live at the foot of the cross, people who reflect for even a moment On all the junk that Jesus forgave them for they don't carry suitcases full of rocks and resentment they leave it at the foot of the cross my question of you is have you left your resentment and bitterness at the foot of the cross I'll close with this. John and Nancy Ortberg tell the story of a friend of theirs named Sue, who had a stormy relationship with her mother. Most of the time, it was all out war. The best it ever was was a ceasefire. Sue never got a compliment from her mother that she can remember. She's an attractive woman, according to the Ortbergs, but Her mother never told her that she looked pretty. About the only way that they could relate was to inflict pain on each other. Sue eventually got married and she moved away. And in the years that followed, she would avoid every opportunity she possibly could not to go back. Because she just couldn't bear those hurt feelings resurfacing again. Well, years later, she got a call informing her that her mother was dying. And she began to pray, God, do something, please. Do something to my heart. Do something in the heart of my mother. Just don't let it end this way. She flew home. They kept a family vigil by her mother's bedside for several days. Late one night, she went to her mother's bedroom and and sat down next to her. And as she did so, something began to stir within her. Something really hard began to melt. She found herself saying words that she thought she would never say. She looked at her mom in the eyes, and she said, Mom, I'm sorry. I know I wasn't always easy to raise. Yes, I felt hurt by you too, but I also caused you a lot of hurt and pain. Please forgive me for that. Tears welled up in her mother's eyes and she responded by saying, I'm sorry too. And Sue said for the first time since she was a little girl, her heart flooded with mom, with, with love for her mother. She hadn't touched her mom for years and now she couldn't stop holding her mother's hand. Cradling her head, stroking her hair. She just couldn't let go. Her mother was having trouble speaking by now. And so she took a piece of paper and she wrote a single word for Sue to read. And then she pointed towards her. And the word that she wrote was pretty. You're pretty. Sue says it was her mother's last night here on earth. But it was the best night she'd experienced with her in her entire life. You see, folks, a prison door was unlocked. Two frozen, bitter hearts melted. And two huge suitcases full of resentment got laid down at the foot of the cross two human beings who lived as enemies became mother and daughter. And it happened because one of them humbled herself, reached out to the other and said, I am so sorry. I'm through with carrying a suitcase full of resentment. You know, church, there is no miracle like the miracle of grace and forgiveness. I don't believe there's a person in this place, regardless of how tough and calloused you may be on the surface, who deep down inside doesn't long to be forgiven and to forgive. But it won't happen until we're prepared to break the cycle of ungrace and do what seems so totally unfair and that is to forgive and so we all have a choice to make we can coddle our hurt until it turns to hate and rage and then begins to destroy us from the inside out or we can turn our lives over to the one who forgave in us that which didn't deserve to be forgiven either the one who will give us the power to forgive. You see, Jesus can do what you can't do. He can provide the grace and the power to forgive others and to forgive yourself. And if you open your life to him, he will give you the grace to love those who are a threat to you or who are seeking to hurt you. He will. I'm going to invite you to do that right now as we pray. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I'm just going to give you several moments right now to pray, to respond back to God. And I want to remind you that the altar is open. And while we pray silently, I want to encourage you to bring that suitcase of resentment to the foot of the cross. Right here to the altar. And then to get up and leave it there. I want to encourage you to come as we pray. The person next to you will let you pass. Don't let that stop you. Let's pray together. And let's do business with God right now. Father, I just want to thank you for this message that you've delivered through your servant Obadiah. And the reminder, Lord, how much you are grieved when we harbor resentment and bitterness in our lives. Lord Jesus, I want my heart to be right. I want to extend grace and forgiveness to others and also to myself. And I can't do this without you. And so I'm reaching out to you right now in faith. Please, Lord, forgive me for my sins, for my stubborn pride, for wanting my, pl- my pound of flesh, and for re- just for nursing resentment in my life. Come into my life, Lord, and, and just make me clean. By your authority, I choose to forgive today that person that you've brought to mind during our time together. And I pray that you will heal the emotions I still have. And that you would give me strength as I talk to those that I need to talk to. As I ask forgiveness of those that I need to ask forgiveness of. And as I begin to extend forgiveness to others and act out your forgiveness from this day forward Lord help me to keep on keeping on replace my regret with your grace my pain with your peace my hurt with your healing my fear with your faith my pride with your presence my bitterness with your love and all of my reservations about the future with the resources that are mine in Christ Jesus. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. to shine upon you and be gracious to you the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace as you leave that suitcase of hurt and resentment at the cross in the name of God the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit